0: Hi, this is Steve Cochran, and this is Live From My Office, the best podcast to come out of this office, and it's not even close. Here's the deal. You subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends. You're always going to get entertainment here. And when you subscribe, you'll never miss a single episode. Uh, We continue to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the great radio station, WLS, where you can hear me every weekday morning from 530 to 9 and stream it wherever you are in the world. But this time around, I want to play you a couple more interviews that we did with uh, the architect of Music Radio WLS and the boss and the DJ that came before him and hung around a bit after, the great Tommy Edwards. Tommy Edwards and John Guerin are the featured, um, well, guests is the right way of putting this. And you get to hear the whole interviews here uh, on the Live From My Office podcast. We will have many more of these to come. And uh, I'm working on some cool guests that aren't related to the LS story, but the whole thing comes back to my original point. Listen, subscribe, and if you prefer, rate and review. But we're happy to have you wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, we continue with Live from My Office with the first of my two guests on the 100th anniversary of WLS the great Lil Tommy. <laughs> celebration of the 100th anniversary of the big 89 wls nothing's a greater thrill for me than talking to the legends the legends that built this place including the great tommy edwards how are you
1: hey i'm doing well i uh just getting along you know having a good time and have a got a uh, great deal of memories that you i know, enjoy yeah you,
0: you look back and and i'm not going to ask you for a specific you know a seminal event that the is the story you tell at the barbecue Because there's too many. I I don't think people understand that music radio, WLS, the big 89 WLS was the center of the universe for um, pop music, for hits, for rock and roll for a number of years. They all came through the stone container building, right?
1: They sure did. And I don't know if we really understood how powerful it was. I mean, I guess the one time that it really hit us hard was uh, there was a day that I was on the air and I was playing uh, my oldies and playing other songs and everything. We were going to have a jock meeting that afternoon. And I played Gotta Get You Into My Life by The Beatles, 1967. And I thought, you know, that's such a great song, you know, and I'm in the studio, I'm, I'm jamming to it while I'm playing it and all this stuff. So then I went on and played whatever was next. Then the jock meeting starts and the guys were all sitting around and they say, hey, somebody said, Hey, Tommy, I heard you play uh, Gotta Get You Into My Life. God, what a great song that was. And we all said, it sure was. And we said, well, why don't why don't we start playing it again? What? It, what? Why don't we start playing it again like it's a current? I mean, and so John Guerin said, okay, yeah, all right. Uh, we'll put it on, uh, on the hot clock and, and rotate it quickly and all that stuff, and let's do it. So we did it. And we got it to be number one in the country in 1976. <laughs> Nine years after it was released. And Capitol Records called and said, what the heck are you guys doing? I'm get, we're getting record stores saying, we need an order. We need an order. I've got to get you into my life, Beatles. How fast can you get it to us?
0: That, and that kind of thing. And those kind of stories happen all the time. My, uh, my friend Dennis DeYoung with Sticks says, listen, if not for WLS, we'd still be playing high school dances. Um, we never would have gotten out. And the amount of bands you guys broke, I mean, it's just a part of rock and roll history.
1: That's right, yeah. When you mentioned Dennis, I had to chuckle because he played right field for the 89ers softball team. There you go. And and he always wore purple pants, which we couldn't figure out.
0: So he was literally in the don't-hit-it-to-me position. Did he have any skills on the diamond?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he enjoyed it. I mean, he... He was—he's uh, an athlete. Uh, he yeah. he played great right field and everything, but it, that was the kind of thing when you say, "Hey, Dennis DeYoung wants to play for the eighty nine ers." Sure, stick him out in right field. Yeah, let's do it.
0: So you uh, you know had a great run with the Bulls. You've had his fabulous career. Like me, I tell people I'm blessed. I never had a real job. Um, we're all blessed that have been able to do this. But do you have any of those pinch myself moments? Especially with the hundredth anniversary now, you look back and go. Wow, that was cool.
1: Oh, there are so many. There are so many that uh, I, I go back and I think about. I remember the first day I walked in. I mean, I was It was uh, June 12, 1972, and I had been on the air in New York City. Uh, I had gotten out of the Navy in 69. I was stationed in the Pentagon when I was in the Navy, and I was flying up to New York on the weekends to do a weekend show. And then I went full-time, and um, it got to be— that uh, ABC was getting a little upset because our radio station was uh, getting bigger numbers and starting to steal away from WABC, the giant there.
0: Right, the flagship in New York.
1: Sure. So they started uh, looking at the talent, and they started saying, why don't we get the talent out of town? And it's called raiding a shop. It's something that I did when I was program director at WLS. I raided uh, B96. uh, Mm -hmm. Anyway, so... I get a phone call from Mike McCormick in Chicago at WLS saying, uh, Hey, can you uh, jump on a plane and come talk to us about something? I went, well, yeah, all right. Because I had already let it be known I wanted to be a program director, too. And so they that's what they heard. Rick Sklar was a friend of mine. Sure. And I think he passed on. that. Rick Sklar ran WABC, and he was the genius program director there. And uh, so I flew to Chicago and talked to uh, Mike and the general manager, Paul Abrams, and they offered me a great job, and so I went back to New York and told my wife, I said, uh, "I, why don't we go to Chicago? I mean, when I was a kid, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, and I started radio while I was in high school. And like every radio geek, I listened to stations that were way a long way away and in giant signals. I listened to WLS, WGN, KOMA in Oklahoma City, sure. World War in Fort Wayne.
0: They're called clear channel signals in and I was a kid in upstate New York listening to you guys. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and so I, when I would listen to these stations, one of them, as I mentioned, was WLS. When WLS called and said, why don't you fly to Chicago and talk to us, I thought, WLS? Are you kidding? Right. So I jumped on the plane and, and we you know, eventually moved to uh, Chicago. And I worked uh, as production director, assistant program director. And, uh, and then uh, McCormick left. A year later, and I was named program director, and and I was, you know, I I just and we were going through all kinds of changes at that time. Oh my God! So we had to hire new people, hired guys like Bob Surratt and and Steve King and the Vaughn sure. Daniels, and uh, you know, and so that that was what was going on at back in those days.
0: You know, in the, the the amount of radio stars that were homegrown or grown through LS is massive, but. It's hard for people to understand what a big deal it was to just get a, an interview at LS, let alone get hired and be one of that murderer's row of talent. And not only were you one of those guys and eventually management there as well, well, figure out the direction of the place and keep it as big as it was. You also were the only guy that had this really sort of special relationship with Larry Lujak, who you've said before to me, you know, complicated guy, obviously fabulous talent, but what do you make of the fact that you were his, you were his pal? Because there was, I didn't, you know, again, I'm listening through the radio like everybody else is, but it seemed like there was a real genuine brotherhood there.
1: There really was. It started off with uh, a fact I didn't like him at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh,
0: that was Larry's I calling in. card, wasn't it? That's his first impression. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's who Larry was. I went into the studio the first day at uh, WLS. He had already resigned and, and was going to go over to CFL, but he was uh, working out his contract. And I walked in and I said, hi, Larry, I'm Tommy Edwards. He went, you're the guy from New York? And I said, yeah. And I put my hand out to shake hands. And he said, I don't shake hands with people from New York. Wow. And I went, what? Wow. And so I turned around and walked out. Now he denied that later. And I said, Larry, why would I make that that's who you were. Right. I mean, come on. So, uh, and Bennett, I think the thing that kind of sealed us as friends was there. I, he was at CFL and I was at WLS and I was no longer program director. I was like production director or something like that. And, um, there was an article about some of the changes that had been made at, uh, WLS, the touch tone and, and the, what's your favorite radio station and all this other stuff. And it was attributed to somebody else and Larry called and, and I said, Hey man, I read that article and I know it's not true. I know who put that stuff and I know who created that stuff. And I I said, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, uh, thanks. And he went, okay, man, talk to you later. And he hangs up. And then when Marty Greenberg uh, said, why don't we see if we can get Larry back and, um, because he was at CFL and we called over and talked to his agent, Saul Foos, and uh, we arranged a meeting. And when I, when we went into that meeting, I could tell right then and there that there was um, a link. I mean, he, he came off friendly. He came off respectful. He came off all that. And, and I was rather intimidated by him because I, you know, he's so, he was such a great talent. Right. And then after a while, we were talking to each other on the, when he came back to uh, WLS, we were talking all the time. He would call me on the weekends. We would, you know, at one point I tried to go out and play golf with him and (laughs) I'll never do that again, you know, um, because you know, he's, he's such a stickler for rules. He's a stickler for this and that. And and pain in the ass. He's a
0: competitive pain. He was a competitive pain in the ass.
1: (laughs) And it was not a pleasant experience. So I just said, Hey, you can take golf and uh, forget it. But, um, you know, that that's what it was. And then over, over a period of time, I mean, it it got to be very close. And, of course, toward the end, um, I was calling him about once a week to check up on him and all that. So
0: You know, um, through the absolute peak of, of fame and popularity and all that, um, there were two types of talent. There were singular talents who, you know, you listen to Lou Jack, you know what you're going to get. He's uh, everything from the grumpy old man to the cool guy down the block to the cowboy to all those things. But you were a guy that could do any show on the station. And I think that's probably what made you a great program director, too, because you understood talent because you were talent. And I think speaking of dealing with Larry and some of those other folks, it was different then. And I don't know that people understand Larry leaving at that point, And you didn't buddy up to the guys on the other station because they were the competition
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I was, you know, the competition was why I I just loved working at LS back in those days, because I loved the competition of uh, going up against CFL, another 50,000-watt uh, flamethrower. And even when FM was coming on, and that was the key that, that I think that LS really stood out for, because back in those days, it was LS and CFL, the two AM giants playing rock and roll, And you had these FM stations coming on. I had come from New York where the FM station was getting into W.A.B.C.'s ratings. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that was going to happen. And I thought, what are we going to do to keep that from happening right now? There's no way that we can keep it, uh, stop it forever. It's going to happen. But we've got to do something to keep us uh, relevant and, and successful and all that. And so that's why we work so hard to come up with great promotions, so what's your favorite radio station? Sending trainloads of people to Disney World, all that stuff.
0: So th- again, different times, and and when radio ruled, the promotional budgets you guys had, and the amount of money that was spent on thanking listeners and and, and creating that buzz and bringing more people in, trainloads of listeners seems like something that's just a pipe dream now. Of course. But what were some of your favorite promotions that you were involved in or, or maybe created yourself?
1: Well, that that one was uh, the train loads. Let me just tell you how that worked. Uh, we had put WLS on the What's Your Favorite Radio Station, say WLS, and you could win anything from a sailboat to two tickets to see uh, a band or whatever to record albums to, you know, it just was everything. And um, the executive from Disney came to see us and said, uh we have a situation we want to talk to you about. If you're uh, living on the West Coast and you want to go to, Disney, to, to Disneyland, it's right there on the West Coast. If you live on the East Coast, if you want to go to Disney, you go down to Disney World. Midwest, we want everyone in the Midwest to come to Disney World. And we said, oh, okay. He said, so you guys, you own the Midwest. So how do we do this? We want a promotion, and what we'll do is we have arranged with Amtrak to send three train loads of people down to Disney world, all expenses paid. And, uh, you guys come up with a contest with the promotion. So.
0: (laughs) That's uh, incredible.
1: Yeah. So after he left and everything, we went into a couple of meetings and we were saying, okay, what are we going to do? Uh, Disney trivia. Nah, that's stupid. Uh, let's do driven. And then somebody said, wait a minute, we've already got the contest. It's called what's your favorite radio station. Right. and, and if they say uh, if they answer WLS, you win a trip for a family of four to Disney World. Yeah, let's do that. So we called down to uh, Orlando and we said, okay, we've got the promotion, and they and they said, well, that's what we were hoping you were going to do. Yeah, that's great. Let's do it. So they put it all together, and it was an enormous contest, as you can imagine. Uh, we had I wrote up all the uh, scripts for for the thing and sent them down to Disney. And they had uh, the mouse voice, the Donald Duck voice, and all the other goofy voice uh, cut little tracks that we could put into the thing. I used the Jiminy Cricket, When You Wish Upon a Star, as the theme music. And um, they sent uh, what they called the duck and the mouse. That's how Disney referred to Mickey Mouse and Donald (laughs) Duck. When they they sent the mouse and the duck up to Chicago to go to Children's Hospital— and so and that was such a huge thing because the, the characters came up and the children were just so excited. That sure. Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck were here and all that stuff. And when it, when it was all over, the day it was all over, everybody was exhausted. The executive said, uh, hey, we need some place to go and crash and just relax. And I said, come over to my apartment, you know, because we lived downtown at that time. So I called my wife and I said, uh, "We're going to have the Disney exec and the Duck and the Mouse and all the promotion <laughs> people. Everybody's coming over to the house tonight. Donald and Duck and oh, Mickey
0: Mouse are coming over."
1: Yeah. So she goes, "Oh my God!" So she runs to the store and grabs, you know, food and all kinds of stuff. And so they come over and we just all sit around and relax. I'll never forget that night because we had a thunderstorm, lots of lightning. And uh, we were up on the thirty third floor of the apartment down there on Rush Street. Sure. And and so we all had the blinds all open so we could watch the lightning and all this stuff. But anyway, it was just an incredible evening. But that's we've we just sealed this relationship with Disney World, and we you know we did several promotions after that with them because they knew they could trust us.
0: So you, you go through this period and, and the thing that happens when you're at the peak of whatever you do in life, I don't know that you appreciate it because you don't know it's the peak. So yeah, yeah. so when did it change? When did that word at the top and it's, it we're always going to be your thing start to feel like it was shifting. Was it the it Was it the influx of FM? Was that what started to break it down?
1: It started that way. Um, but also uh, I think the management and the company itself started realizing that AM radio was going to be merging into a talk format versus a music format. And so that started, and then when when it happened, uh, the talk format got to be a little um, confrontational, if you will, with the FM format. And Mm -hmm. what I'm I'm talking about is with uh, Steve and Gary. Steve and Gary came over uh, after they got fired from the loop, and uh, they started uh, going on the air, and they were criticizing the FM, and they were criticizing the talent and all that stuff, and so it just started to begin to—I don't know—could uh, tell things were really happening, and they weren't—they weren't pleasant at all. So, I guess that was about the time that I decided that it was going to uh, time to move on. So. I got there in, in 1972, and I left in November of 1985. Yeah, that's a great run, man. It's a great run. Yeah.
0: Do you remember sleeping those seven uh, or those uh, those thirteen years? I should say <laughs> sleeping. Yeah, exactly. Sleeping will come later. Let me throw a few names at you from the that legendary lineup, and just give me, you know, just a, just a gut response to all of them. John Records Landecker.
1: Oh, it was brilliant! The, our, the night that my wife and I got into Chicago, we checked into the hotel that uh, WLS had arranged for us, and we turned on the radio and we listened to this guy, John Landecker, and we thought, "Oh my God, this guy is good! Oh, wow!" And we're sitting there just amazed at some of the things he was doing, and uh, and so I mean that was our first reaction to to Decker and uh, everybody had nicknames at WLS and he was Decker. So um, we, after, after that, I mean, Decker was just incredible. Everything. Yeah.
0: And, and, and to think what he was able to do in that tiny little booth. And, and again, you don't know how hard your job is until you see how easy it gets later. Um, I'll even go to Wally Phillips. It was described to me how Wally Phillips did his morning show on WGN where there's 11 people around, and there were record turners and various things, but the forward thought you had to have and the focus you have to have. And Landecker, the brilliance of Landecker to me was always, how do you put that much entertainment into a 10-second run-up of a record?
1: <laughs> That's so true. You know, it, it, if you're if listeners will remember with John, he did certain recordings where he would do almost like, you know, the old Flying Saucer records yep. where. Uh, okay, that uh, somebody would say something, and then there would be a peaceful record in there. He wrote those things, and he would come, he would call me, because I was a production director, and he'd say, hey, man, can I get like a half hour, 45 minutes before I go on the air? And I said, sure. So we book it in the production studio. And he comes, and then he starts building that. Here's what I've written, and I need some voices. And so we all came up with, uh, different voices that we would create, you know. I think I, I was one. Why I, I was talking like this, like I was from the south, you know. Sure. And so we, and we started putting this stuff together, and he would put it together, and just it would be incredible. And then you know, press my conference and uh, the whole uh, Yule Gibbons. Do you think I'm not Hickory Nuts and all that? Sure. So, 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 but the, he was the creative mind who came up with all that.
0: Yeah, and, and to be able to write that short is uh, fairly miraculous, um, but it was all part of understanding the music was the star, and you got bigger by respecting it and all the things I never got.
1: Uh, Yvonne Daniels. Uh, the Yvonne Daniels was at WSDM, and her ratings were getting, to, continuing to uh, get better and better. This is when I was program director. Mm-hmm. And so we decided that the only way that we could kind of stall the FM penetration to increase is to take the talent away from it. That's, that was the only power we sure. had. So she was one of the first that I, we approached. And we said, what we'd like, uh, Yvonne, is for you to come over to WLS. Uh, we're, we're talking about having doing the all-night show. Now, this isn't just the all-night show. This is all-night drive. You can be heard coast-to-coast, down in Mexico, up in Canada. You will have the largest radio audience you have ever had in your career. That's the Internet before there was one. That's right. And so she said yes, and we put her on at night. And I think she yeah, she was there, uh, I think, two weeks or three weeks just before Bob Surratt, when I hired him.
0: Yeah, and Serrat, of course, is a Chicago legend, still uh, doing it after all these years. What about Jeff Davis?
1: Jeff Davis uh, came from uh, the East Coast. He worked at a station that I worked at at one time. When I was at uh, uh, in the, working in the Pentagon in the Navy I, at night, uh, I was working at WEAM. It's, uh, it was an AM station. Mm-hmm. And he worked there. And when he called and said, uh, are there any openings and all that, and I said, well, i You know, send me something. So uh, he sent a tape of his work and all that and sounded pretty good. So I went to uh, Garen at that time and I just said, This guy worked at a station I used to work at and they're very good. And so uh, we hired him and he came in and eventually did the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift. And he also was the voice of our public affairs um, uh, production.
0: Um, Fred Winston.
1: Fred Winston is one of the. He doesn't need any script. He doesn't need any prep. He just reacts. He is so funny, and his mind is so quick. Yep. Um, I when when I put him on when let's see when Charlie Van Dyke was doing the morning show. Charlie uh, replaced Larry Lou when Larry went over to CFL, and then when uh, Van Dyke said, "I'm I've had it with <laughs> I've had it with cold winters. I'm moving back to L.A." Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I put Fred on in the morning and Fred, uh, came into work. I think it was the first day with a, like a ream of paper with jokes and stuff like that. And it just didn't work. I just said, I called him in the office afterwards. I said, Fred, you don't need this stuff. Just react, just react to people. Yeah. React to the room. Sure. Mine. Exactly. So he and Lyle Dean, uh, did a lot of stuff like that because yep. Lyle, they came up with a thing called choose your news. Yep. And, Lyle would give three headlines and then Fred would say, okay, tell me the third one. So they start telling that story and he wouldn't react to the funny things in the story. And it was hysterical.
0: And, it was yeah. great. And Lyle Dean is one of the great straight men of all time. Um, I've had the pleasure to know Lyle through the years. So he was fabulous. We barely even scratched the surface with everybody that came through, but how could you? And WLS News is as, as, as well. Um, you mentioned uh, Stephen Gary. Uh, did they fit when they came over? Was it a major speed bump? You know, it's, uh, it's odd to bring those guys into the team at that point. I'm thinking,
1: well, don't forget in the very beginning when they came over, they were on the FM. Oh, good and, point. Yep, and, uh, yep, yep. Yeah. And they were on the FM for some time. Uh, the studio was downstairs. They eventually moved the studio upstairs. I think they just kind of gave up that uh, space down in the, on the third floor no fourth floor because we were on the fifth, and uh, Paul Harvey had already moved out, and so Jam Productions was took over his space. Anyway, um, yeah, they were down there, and uh, they started what you know one of the things that they would do, which is kind of creative when you think about it. I mean, uh, they would patch in the AM so they could bring it on the air anytime they wanted to on FM. Right. And it, so, and so what they would do is they would put, you know, all of a sudden AM would show up on FM and then they would be there criticizing it and making fun of it and, and all the kinds of stuff. So it was pretty funny. Um, but after a while, some of the people were saying, Hey, what, what, I thought we were all on the same team here. What, what's right. going on? Right. So, so that was pretty much it.
0: And, and at any point, did Larry threaten to kill the, the, both of them or just one?
1: Well, there is the, there is the, um, ultimate uh thing that happened, and i I think I found a cd that 's got that whole audio on it. I found it just the other day. The boys when they came over to a m um, like I said, they would make fun of and criticize everybody at the station, and some of them would be the innocent people that worked in the traffic department right and these are unnecessary girls, but, uh, yeah un- totally unnecessary, and they would be making fun of. Uh, one of them calling her Miss Fumes because uh, they just didn't like her perfume or something like that. And it was, it, it was really getting to be uh, uh, serious. And Larry, who never left the station uh, until like 5 o'clock, I mean, he came on the air at 5 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. and didn't leave the station until 5 p.m. because all that the rest of the time was him just – Working on show prep and and you know getting the next animal stories ready and all that. Sure. Stuff. So anyway, he just walked into the studio, and he said, "This is it. You're not going to be doing this anymore." And he said, "Well, okay, Larry, get out of here. I mean, come on, you can't just walk in." He said, I, "Yes, I did. I wish I could remember everything that was being said." Oh, it's a great one.
0: piece of tape. It's a it's a great piece of tape. We got to find it for the anniversary because you can hear the butt pucker on Stephen oh, yeah. Gary. Um, because Larry was not happy, not happy,
1: not happy. And they said something and he, and he said, uh, well, you know, there was some sort of indication of a little violence. And, uh, Larry said, I'll, I'll have both of you on the ground here in just a second. Exactly.
0: Um, uh, I I would be doing a disservice, uh, to all if I didn't say you're the most cliche question that Tommy Edwards ever gets asked. What's your favorite animal story?
1: Oh, God. I, there are so there are so many of them. I, I, you know, I think I keep going back to the one that he set me up. No, no, no. I'll tell you which one it is. Okay. Because I, I, when he did the disco kit, disco was huge <laughs> back in those days. Right. And it was something that uh, everybody was talking about. Anyway, he said, uh, okay, little well, Tommy, I've got uh, – the." If you're uh, planning to go to the disco, I've got something that's going to make you the star of the disco, and you'll have every woman coming after you. I said, what? And he said, close your eyes. And so I closed my eyes. I really did close my eyes. Mm-hmm. And he took a sausage, and he put it down the leg of his <laughs> jeans. And, <laughs> and he said, now, open your eyes. And I looked, and I saw it, I saw it and I, I just burst out laughing. I couldn't believe it. Of course. I couldn't believe it. And he described it, so the listeners out there, they knew knew exactly what it looked like because of the way he described it. That's right. And and he said, this commands respect. (laughs) And so I just, I completely lost it at that point.
0: The animal stories thing, along with, I guess, boogie check from Landeck, or maybe the big 89 countdown, I mean, those are the things that everybody that grew up on WLS remembers as much as anything else, and i y- you just you're the best man, I mean, you're as sharp as you've ever been, I loved what you did with the bulls and everything you did after l s but I'm just I'm so happy for you to be able to uh be able to look back and go, oh, not only was a part of it, I helped guide it, and I thank God you were with the Pentagon before you were a big shot disc jockey because that's not an order you want to get in the wrong direction. Let's hire the disc jockeys at the Pentagon. <laughs>
1: So It was an eventful time. I mean, the USS Pueblo was captured by the sure. North Koreans. That was our ship. That was, it was over there monitoring phone traffic.
0: Yeah, they weren't calling Wolfman Jack to consult on that. Um, but listen, it's an honor to talk to you. I know you hate when I fanboy you, but you've been a good friend of me through the years. And I, uh, I love that uh, you'll take my call when you talk. And uh, I love the history. So congratulations on being a part of it. And... Happy birthday, WLS, right?
1: Happy birthday, WLS.
0: And the boss that was really the guy that guided the coolest disc jockeys and the biggest chunk of time when WLS ruled the radio world in the 70s and into the early 80s. Talking about John Guerin, couldn't be a better guy. Yeah, I said it, and I said it about management. Here's that on live from my office. As so we continue to celebrate 100 years of the Big A 90 WLS, it is a pleasure to welcome to the studios, that wouldn't exist if this guy wasn't such a success, the great John Garrett, the legend of music radio WLS. How are you, sir?
2: Wonderful. It's nice to be in this uh, great studio that uh, that I haven't been in before, so it's terrific.
0: Is there too much pressure when I say it's the house that you built, even though this is technically not your house?
2: Uh, I, had a, I, had, I was good for a couple of bricks. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Let me go backwards before we go forwards, because um, people in Chicago and, and certainly in the Midwest, if not the country, who are old enough to remember the 70s and the early 80s remember the impact of uh, music radio 890 WLS and the great personalities. You worked with them all. You hired them. Probably had to fire a couple. But give people a little background on you. Where were you when you got the WLS job?
2: I was program director of CBS FM in New York, and uh, when Tommy Edwards decided he wanted to get you know get back into the talent side, that sure. opened up an opportunity, and I had met Rick Sklar, who was program director of WABC in New York,
0: a legendary program director as well. And was
2: part of the ABC stations, and sure. he liked what I was doing at CBS FM, uh, and. Invited me over and interviewed me and then suggested that Marty Greenberg, who was the general manager at the time at WLS, talk to me. So I flew out and met, met Marty. And, uh, and fortunately for me, he hired me. And you grew up where? I grew up in upstate Pennsylvania. So I used to listen to WLS at night. Right. I, was, I was a big Dick Biondi fan when he was at a radio station in Buffalo. Sure. And all of a sudden, he disappeared. And so, you know, back in the day, I would DX up and down the dial. You could hear these big clear channel stations like WLS, you know, all over the country. And I'm dialing around one night, and by gosh, there's Dick Biondi. And so there in upstate Pennsylvania, whenever I could, I would tune in at night to WLS to hear Dick Biondi because he was one of my favorite
0: disc jockeys. it was the closest thing we had to the Internet, kids, uh, when you could listen to these 50,000-watt clear channel stations— um, when you were running the place or certainly shortly before you got there, I was in high school doing my homework, listening to John Landecker because you could hear it in upstate New York, mm-hmm. uh, in Ithaca, not far from where you were. We both end up in Chicago. You, t- you go home, you tell your wife, we're going to move to Chicago. Or do you say, what do you think?
2: Uh, I said, what do you think? Uh-huh, and, uh, Cause you know, you're a
0: smart guy. Oh, you know, yes.
2: It's mo- sometimes, not all the time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh, yes, talked it over and, uh, and it was a great opportunity. What's funny is that I had never done Top 40. I mean, I knew about it. Obviously, I listened to it. But I was programming an oldies station in New York, which at the time, oldies was a young format because the music wasn't that old back in the, back in the 70s. That's a great point. So, uh, you know, we were playing in the 50s and 60s and stuff. But sure. Rick Sklar liked the fact that I had all the formatics down. right. And, and had good disc jockeys on the air and, and liked the way the station sounded. And, and that's why I got hired at WLS. Well,
0: I mean, to be as good as you are and have always been, you've got to be able to max um, your ability to recognize talent, to let them go. But you were doing this in a time where there was great pressure, I would assume corporately, but certainly there was great pressure from an image of the industry. Play the records, man. Play the record. You got something to say. You say it over the 10-second lip, or you get it in. And I think it's one of the magical things about Landecker. So was it harder to figure out who the right talent was to have mixed with the amount of music you guys were playing? Well, I walked into a great lineup of talent. Yeah, what was the lineup when you got there? Uh, Fred Winston was in
2: the morning. Love Fred. J.J. Jeffrey, who I worked with at WFIL in Philadelphia. Sure. And he was the only one that knew me because I'm working in New York at an FM station back in the 70s. Right,
0: you hippies. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and, yeah, and so nobody really knew me in the in the industry. And JJ, they you know when I got hired, it was like, who is this guy? Right. And JJ was the only one that knew me because he remembered me from Philadelphia, WFIL. But anyway, sure. he did midday. Bob Surratt was afternoon. Landecker was at night. Steve King was, you know, late evening, and Yvonne Daniels did overnight. Wow. And Jim Kerr was our weekend talent, <laughs> and Jim Kerr has been on the air for. I think, over 30 years in New York yeah. and
0: with a very, very successful career. So you were walking into a bit of a murderer's row. Yes, yes. But as a young programmer, you want to make your mark as well. So what did you hear that needed to be fixed?
2: Uh, we just had to clean things up a little bit because CFL was on on the tail and, in fact, had, had beat WLS for one of the first times in a, in a while. Wow. And, and a lot of the talent had been new because Tommy hired some really good talent but they hadn't been on WLS for a long time. So I really upped the amount of actually talk that they could do and recognition, the jingles and everything else. We greatly increased their name jingles because I wanted to burn their names into the audience's Mind so when they'd fill out the diary back in the day, sure, because you wrote everything down, sure. it's, it's all automatic now, but you had, to, you had to remember what you listened to. And I wanted people to remember not only the radio station,
0: but the talent. And that's an important thing uh, diary manipulation. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess the current term would be search engine optimization, yeah. But the idea being that if you got the talent right, the station would get credit for the listen, right?
2: Yeah. And we changed, you know, we cut the music back to, uh, you know. Back. Everybody was playing too many songs, and I cut the playlist back, and, and it was just play the hits, and we had an enormous queue because you you tune in, and you'd hear the hits.
0: Right. So, do you remember when you walked in, uh, a feeling of butterflies, intimidation, you know, confidence, or maybe a little bit of all of it?
2: Oh, a little bit of all of it. I mean... Yeah, WLS was a big radio station. Right. I mean, there were three big radio stations in America that controlled what people heard on the radio. Well, one and, and one frankly, was WABC contro- in well, New frankly, York. Well, frankly, controlled
0: the record industry, yeah. right? Yeah,
2: yeah, WABC in New York, WLS in Chicago, and KHJ in LA. Right. And I would argue that WLS was probably the most influential because of the 50,000 watts. Covering so much ground in the Midwest, right? because half the signal in New York went over the water, yep. and half the signal in L.A. went over the water, Great point. where it went all over the Midwest at WLS.
0: Yeah, from Canada to Mexico and uh, from the Rockies uh, all the way back to the East Coast.
2: In fact, I remember I was in uh, San Francisco on business for the company, and I'm driving across the... Uh, Golden Gate Bridge and I'm tuning around and I, WLS came in and I hear wow. Landecker and Landecker wasn't quite following the format because he, <laughs> he knew I was out of town. <laughs> so I, this is before we had cell phones and stuff, so I get back to the hotel and I, I called him on the hotline and I said, John, and he was kind of surprised that, hey boss. Know,
0: yeah, <laughs> that I heard what he was doing. What were you like in those sorts of meetings with talent? Did you have to crack the whip occasionally?
2: Occasionally but I always found that uh, trying to reason with them and explain why I wanted things done. And also, I left a lot up to them because if you're going to hire great talent, that, don't try and change them. You, let, you want the talent to come out. And that was my philosophy to say, I want you to go from A to B, and I'm going to give you a lot of decision-making on how you're going to get from A sure. to B. Sure. And if I think you're making a real bad turn, I'll let you know.
0: Yeah, and and the, but you you know you well know that level of understanding existed between your ears and about four other people. Yes, a, in the business because so many didn't want to allow great talent to develop. Uh, but also, I think it's important to say the lineup you walk into and the lineup that evolved while you were there with people you brought in. These were not rookies. No, these were people that were established, and these people had yeah. talent, or they wouldn't have gotten the meeting. Well, I really
2: appreciated talent because I tried to be a talent. And I realized very early on that I wasn't going to go beyond college radio, my, right. you know, as a career. And I better get into the management side. So I really appreciated what they went through. They don't think like management people, right. Or they'd be in management. Right. And management people don't think like talent, or they'd be a, a talent. And yet, you and I are friends. It's odd. Yes. <laughs> so, so that's because we don't have to work together. Well, no? no, yeah, that's
0: true. We, we, we never, uh, we never had that. Uh, Pleasure or pain. Um, but when you come in and Fred Winston, for instance, is doing Morning show. this is not just a big talent. This is a big guy with a big voice and a face that's not that welcoming with his giant mustache to hide behind. Was he a guy that you could sit down with and reason with if you felt he could go in one direction or another? I could reason with all of them. I you mean, I, I didn't have any problem
2: with any of them. Uh, they all, in the end, you know, were able to do what I wanted but again, I was very flexible in what I wanted because I knew that they wanted to do things a certain way too. And I think great radio is when you
0: when you work together as a team. Tommy Edwards, um, I know, is, is a, a lifetime friend and a friend of ours as well. And uh, Tommy has that management talent hybrid, which is pretty rare, and a great disc jockey. Um, but Tommy Edwards talked about Fred, and I thought he brought up a great point. When Fred came in, he thought he had to fit into what his image was of WLS or what it may be. And he had like a scripted take on things. And Tommy said, when, he, when, when mm. we sat him down and said, no, we need Fred to be Fred. That's what you're talking about, right? Yes.
2: You got, again, you hire talent for a specific reason of what they can do. Don't change them. I, you know, WLS, some radio stations you would listen to and, and there was a sameness to it. Every talent on WLS sounded different from sure. the jock that came before them. You know, Tommy Edwards was one of the most wonderful midday personalities. He was the complete opposite of what Fred did on the air. And then Bob Surratt. Again, Bob would come on, and again, a different presentation and so on. Landecker was completely different from all of them, and that went through the whole cycle of, of all the talent on the air. They each had their own personality and sound.
0: Landecker, um, to me, is the greatest nighttime disc jockey ever, and I include Beyondy, who I loved. But what John was able to do over those short little introductions to records yes, to promote it, to keep the pace moving, to come up with ridiculous boogie check that everybody in the country was saying. <laughs> I mean, he was a special guy. And he's a very, very smart guy. He's got an interesting background. His father was, I think, a Michigan professor. I believe so, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what do you, what, what, memories of John Landecker. What should people know?
2: Well, it's interesting because when I worked in Philadelphia, uh, he was at WIBG. That's right. So I got to hear him. We never met there. So I knew what he was capable of doing from what I heard in Philadelphia. And he stepped it up a a lot more notches when he was at WLS. But John just had such creativity. His mind was always working, and he came up with all these ideas. With Boogie Check, for instance, uh, he used to go too long. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't know when to stop. Mm -hmm. You know, you get on a roll and you think, I'm just going to keep going or, you know, or you're searching for that final thing to end. So what I did, again, I I didn't give them a, a hard end, but we put a cartridge in the studio and back in the day... You knew when the cartridge was going to end, like at the end of a commercial, a little tone would come on yeah. and a light would come on. Yeah. So I had a cartridge that was uh, like two minutes long, and the engineer would put it in at the beginning of, of the boogie check, and the light would come on about after two minutes to just give John a little, oh— Maybe it's time to get out of
0: this. Well, it's like the flashlight in the back of the room in a stand-up comedy club. It's the same thing. If you get the light while you're on stage, you know your time's up. Let's wrap it up. Oh, I didn't know they did that. Well, that's a, same thing I'm they stole watch, the idea. I'm going to watch for that next time I'm yeah. at a, a comedy show. Yeah. No, they stole. They absolutely stole the idea. But I equate what you had that lineup, um, and and you know, Lou Jack comes in at some point. Stephen Gary are around. They're in the ether, right? Um, that to me feels like, especially when you think about the '70s the same sort of impact and rise of what was going on at Saturday Night Live and what Lauren Michaels was yes. doing there. And you were managing people who were talent. Not that I respect talent. No, of course being talent, I you know, I, I think I have the similar brain. But this was an era where behaviors needed to be regulated in some way. I mean, it's famous at Saturday Night Live that there was the Tuesday night all-night writing session because the the cast was largely coked up and they were awake all night because they (laughs) thought they could get it out of them. Did you have to go home worrying about too much partying going on with the staff? Um, Well, I had a family, Mm -hmm.
2: so I wasn't out partying with them. And frankly, I... I didn't know a lot of what was going on after the fact until I read John Landecker's book. <laughs> and then it was like, "Oh my gosh, they did that kind of stuff." It's amazing
0: what you find when you leave somewhere. You know, all the all the truths come out. But is that part of the legend of this place, this story, this 100 years, is it they could be living the the rock star life, oh yeah, and still show up and do a killer show?
2: Yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, there were times when I I realized that maybe a little too much of something was going on and I'd have to have a little talk about, you know, their lifestyle, Mm -hmm. but, uh, that didn't happen very often, but obviously you knew it
0: was going on. Did you have a sense of how big the place was, um, or I should say had gotten after you got there, say you're there the first couple of years and the impact continues to grow and grow and grow. What was the in indication that you knew you had this national phenomenal product on your hands? Well, it, it was
2: interesting. I, it, again, you, you're, you're working there and you just assume things are, are are the way they are. We knew we had a big signal and so on, but we did a, a survey. We had the rating company, which was Arbitron at the time, uh, go through all the diaries across the U.S. Okay. to see where WLS showed up. And we came up with 5.7 million listeners on, uh, in the, in the evenings to WLS and, I think it was 37 states. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And that was like, oh my gosh. I mean, we knew we covered a lot cause you know, you get calls from all of But that's not over. a
0: network connected no situation. That's just random listening around the country. Yes.
2: And, and it was little things sometimes, like when my son went to, uh, Iowa, University of Iowa, uh-huh. you know, I'm driving to, to, uh, out there and, uh, and I'm getting WLS the whole way, and and again, it's this little thing. Just say, geez, this radio station has a lot of coverage.
0: The uh, impact on Chicago, in particular, was uh, an amazing thing. Did the city politics get integrated into what you did on a daily basis? Because one of the things we didn't talk about, and Tommy and I talked about this a little bit, is you had a great news team. Oh yeah, nobody was coming to 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 the big eighty nine necessarily for news, but you had Lyle Dean and. All these other people who are news legends. Yes. Did that ever mix?
2: Well, we kept the politics out of it. I mean, it was, it was you know, back in the day, it was all about the facts as best as we could do it. Le- legitimate journalism. Legitimate. You remember they, that. Yeah, legitimate journalism. Right. You know, they weren't there to give their opinion. Sure.
0: So, so Lyle Dean, who else? Who else was doing news?
2: We had Jim Johnson. Oh, sure. uh, we, we had... Uh, Jim
0: Johnson's run was amazing. him. Yeah, Bud blossom. Miller
2: was the news director.
0: So Linda try- Marshall. I mean, we had a, a terrific group. And, and occasional clashes between news and talent?
2: Uh, I, no, I guess actually, I'm getting
0: down to how much your job ended up being a little bit of babysitting. a
2: little bit. But you know what? It was interesting. Everybody on the air got along. I mean, the news people were, frankly, as crazy as the talent.
0: Um, that's interesting. I didn't know that.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. There's Again, there were stories. Of, Tommy probably knows more of them than I do, but... Uh, and there are some that we can't tell sure. uh, that, uh, about our news people. So they were, you know, on people are, are an interesting breed. What made Lou Jack special? Larry was so devoted to what he did. He spent so much time on it. Again, he went through periods of time. You know, if you read his book, he talks mm-hmm. about the, the stupid things he did. Mm-hmm. But when he came back to WLS, his feeling was, you tell me what you want and I'm going to deliver for you. And he worked real hard to make that happen. I mean, he was there for hours after the work, looking at things, coming up with stories and things like that. He was totally devoted That between that and his golf game, which he played all year round.
0: Yeah, and uh, there's famous pictures on the Internet of Cog Hill in the Snow in a tournament that he hosted every year. But it's interesting because people, you know, who over the years have asked me, how much time do you have to put in to prepare? And it's as much as you need. But I always felt like you should never have the audience know more than you, and you should always surprise the audience when you can, and it takes at least an hour for every hour you're on the air, and it sounds like Larry was doing more than that yeah, that and and you know he had a, he had a sarcasm
2: to what he did. I mean, it was it, he gave this impression that he didn't care. I mean, he cared a lot, but on the air, he came across as somebody, I think the audience felt that he could do whatever he wanted to because he didn't care. He, he was going to do what he wanted Larry's to do. It was Larry's place, yeah, yeah Larry's show.
0: Exactly. Um, was Animal Stories magic right away, or did it have to grow? Um, it had to grow.
2: I mean, it was, I'm sure Tommy told the story, but, uh, you know, Tommy, after H.H. H. Jeffrey left middays, I put Tommy in middays, and uh, and so they would have a little bit of time between the shows, one show ending and one show starting. and And... Larry did the Animal Stories at the end of the show, and Tommy was in the studio. And that little that laugh he has is infectious. Sure. And and that just it clicked from there, and it went on and on, and then Tommy became a bigger part of Animal Stories, and uh, and they found the right rhythm for it.
0: Um, let's talk about the music piece of this, because um, you were smack dab in the middle of the seventies, transitioning through disco and into the early eighties, and you're still involved with radio. And we haven't even talked about what you're doing now. We will. But um, what did the record industry expect of WLS, and did they ever try to get a little too much?
2: Well, it's interesting because there was a lot going on in the business back then, uh, and uh, and the record companies were pulling a lot of levers to get records on the air. And uh, when I got hired, uh, you know, I got Rick Sklar told me about, you know, you're with ABC, and we have rules, and and he told me the story about when Leonard Goldenson, who was head of ABC, the chairman of the board, um, during the Payola scandal uh, back in the 50s, I guess it was, sure. uh, had to go before Congress. He came back and he says, I never want to have to do that again. Don't ever have anybody put me in that situation. So when people come in and say, what does it take to get this record on the air? I could have said, well, you know, my TV just broke. Or I could say... Um, Here are our requirements. We're going to be calling record stores to see how the record is selling. We want to know what other radio stations are playing. I probably had one of the tightest playlists in America. Uh, We were rarely early on a song because I wanted to see proof and I wanted to be able to document why I added a song.
0: Um, But you didn't have the computer research, which stagnated the business in a big way. Um, How much of it was feel? I mean, you must have had some sense for what a hit might be.
2: Some sense, but again, I wanted I wanted facts. So we called over a hundred record stores every week in Chicago to get our playlist put together to see what was selling and what the audience wanted. And that was the best. That was the best we had back then. This is before we started doing call out and calling people and asking them to rate songs for us and things like that. Sure. Um, so I was always able to say, "Here's why we added a record." I I don't think I ever added a record just because I liked it. I always had some sort of proof and documentation of why I added the record.
0: Is there any way to explain to listeners, whether they've been on the WLS journey the whole time or they're just picking up history now, how big a deal it was for a young band to be on WLS?
2: Oh, well, I'll give you an example of a, of a very unusual situation, Styx. Mm-hmm. Um, They Before I got to the station, they had put out Lady and uh And it hadn't gone well in the market, and uh we would get requests for it every now and then, and my music director, Jim Smith came to me and said, "You know we're getting requests for this record um maybe it's something that was missed, and why don't we just put it in not as a as an ad but just put it into the rotation kind of as a recurrent record sure. and see what happens and we did. And the timing was right and the thing took off, the requests exploded, uh, the record was re released and uh, and the rest is history with you know how sticks is done.
0: Yeah, and Dennis DeYoung, who's a friend of mine as well, tells the story as you told it and talks about how they were a high school dance band. Yeah. And um, they didn't know if it was ever gonna happen until you and Jim Smith had that meeting. And the song he wrote about his wife, woman he's still married to today. There's a rock star yes, story. Yes,
2: that is. Yes, um,
0: but uh, that that made sticks what sticks would become.
2: But that was one of the few times. But again, we it was based on some information that we got, and it was having a good handle of your audience. I think that's the key: is having a good handle of your audience and what the audience wants
0: to hear, not what I want to hear. You must have been getting calls all the time, and your people all the time about we'd like to bring this celebrity by or that celebrity by, and people looking for a plug for this or that. Who was the gatekeeper? Um, a lot of it was Jim
2: Smith. He was a music director. He would see the record people every if you know if, if somebody felt they had a problem, uh, you know I'd I'd meet with them. But Jim Smiths and the other music directors I've I've had. Uh, you know, their job was to meet with the record people every week and see what they had to say and, and what the songs were. And then we'd sit down and look at what we had. Um, but the, we loved having the artists come in, uh, you know, and, and if they were good enough uh, and popular enough, you know, we'd, we'd stick them on the air. I mean, it was great to make that connection and, and make the marriage with our talent and the, and the uh, music industry talent. Were you ever starstruck? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when you get people like uh, Billy Joel to come in and, or Elton John or, uh, you know, I mean, yes, you
0: you get starstruck. And, and were they uh, mostly aware of how big a deal WLS was when they came in? Yes. I yes. mean, Billy Joel's a super smart guy. Elton's a super smart guy. So I assume they knew. Yeah, that they knew. They with.
2: they all knew about WLS.
0: Yeah, because the impact you had, you talk about a 5 million plus listenership, almost 6 million at night um if late night tv shows where you get the majority of plugs get a couple of million people they consider it a win now yes yes you know and that's national tv networks it just gives you kind of a window into how big a deal it was
2: yeah and the record companies you know they, they you know they prepared them they knew what they were coming into and and what to expect when they got to wls
0: any beatles dropped by
2: uh george harrison uh, none of the others that never were, had mccartney come through not while I was there, no. Okay, and remind people, the years you were on the place was? Was 74 to, uh, I believe it was uh, like about 86.
0: And uh, let's talk for a second about the transitional time. Because there were a bit of radio wars that went on, and there were morning show wars that went on, and the business changed a little bit from focusing on what you're doing to shooting at each other. Was that mostly because Stephen Gary started it? Well, um, I guess that's an opinion-based question, but you were were in fact there.
2: The stations went back and forth. I mean, CFL was our big competitor when I Mm -hmm. got there. And frankly, it was good for both of us because it kept us both on our our toes. Um, I was very disappointed when they went away from the format and went Beautiful Music because I knew what was going to come next, which was I was going to have to now compete with the whole FM band. The, you know, the excitement between WLS and WCFL kept people on the AM band. Sure. Then the choice became the WDHFs, the WEFMs, the WMETs, the Loop, all these other stations, BBM-FM, all these other stations started to pop up. And now instead of focusing on one competitor, I had to worry about a whole bunch of competitors. So it became very, very different. Um, but I think at, at that point, people like Stephen Gary jumped out because they were bigger than the music. And, and, and that, was,
0: that was pretty unique.
2: That was very unique. I mean, that, you know, there were very few talents who were bigger than the music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, you you could make the case, and I learned that I shouldn't play too much music in their show. And, you know, we had to debate that when they came over, and I hired them for WLSFM when they got fired from the loop right? Um, about, you know, what kind of format are they going to do? And and I had to give a little bit. They had to give a little bit. And I think we came up with a good uh, mix of of what it should be. And, and it was a lot more talk than I was ever used to. Did you get used to it? Oh, absolutely. Success? Oh, it was incredibly successful. In fact, um, we moved them over to the AM eventually because I realized that the FM... You know, they were on an island because the rest of the station was music and they were this island of, of talk. And we were starting to move WLS to more of a talk format. And it was perfect. We went to federal court to to prove that the my contract said that they I could do that. Is that right? You know, yeah, oh, yeah. I never knew that story. They were afraid to go to AM. They thought it would kill them. They thought their audience wouldn't come to AM. But the first week after they were on the AM and they started getting calls— because especially you know in the winter when nighttime comes sooner and the signal's going sure. out further, they started getting calls from all over the U.S. and and I think that
0: won them over. Yeah, it's good for the ego. Yes. Um, and, and they were
2: and they turned out to be number one in afternoon drive.
0: Yeah, and here we are, forty plus years later. And yes. uh, for those wondering, yes, AM does still work. Um, so uh, Steve and Gary come over. Fred was there. Lou Jack was there. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Yvonne Daniels. Um, this was not a, a business for women, and she is absolutely one of the all-time greats. What's in Yvonne Daniels' memory for you?
2: She was just the most delightful person to work for, uh, work with, I should say. Um, again, you know, I'd, I'd have to stay up at midnight, you know. To, sure. To, to, to actually, beyond midnight to listen to her, Um because she was on the overnight show, I just never had an opportunity to give her to let her do more at the time because I had so many other people in the shifts. Nobody was moving.
0: Well, she had a national show. I mean, literally yes. a national show because after midnight on that signal, everybody heard it.
2: Yeah, and then I hired her back back in the you know when when I was doing smooth jazz at
0: WNUA uh, to do mornings, which was a brilliant move, and nobody talks about it. But her voice, her attitude, her mood. Um, and her equity in Chicago was perfect for that. Yes, it was. So what do you want people to know who love this place, love the history of it? Maybe they were kids listening to music radio. They stuck around with talk radio. Um, what do you want them to know about why WLS is special? I think it was special, again, because the connection with the
2: audience. I mean, when you talk to the people, they don't talk about the songs we played. They talked about the disc jockeys they listened to. You know the Fred Winstons or the Dick Beyondies back in the day, and so on. It's always the personalities they bring out, and I and I think that's what made the station what it was and, frankly, what it does today, I, you know, with with you here in the mornings. I mean, you've moved the needle and, and people are coming back to the radio station and uh, you're having great success here.
0: Well, I appreciate it. You know, a compliment from you counts 10 times what it but counts from But don't go on others. vacation
2: because then we miss you.
0: Well, that's awfully nice of you to say. <laughs> um, let's talk about what you're doing now for as many years, several years. You've been involved in a company called Accuradio. For people that don't know, what is it and how's it doing?
2: It's a digital music company similar to Pandora, where it's based in Chicago, and we have curated music channels that you can listen to for free uh, across all styles of music. So uh, it's worth checking into. We have all the music apps and so on. And then a group of us uh, own some radio stations in San Diego.
0: And those radio stations in San Diego get visited occasionally for the weather or because you're still... Uh, you know, listening day to day and well, once can, in yeah. your blood?
2: Well, I can listen online now, so yes, I don't have can. to, you know, it's it's hard to say. I need to fly out there to listen to the stations because right. I can listen online. Up. But I'm on the board of directors, so we have board meetings. In fact, I just got back from one a couple of weeks ago.
0: Um, well, it's been an amazing run, and your opinion and your insight is still needed. You love this business like I do. Um, I still think it's the purest form of entertainment. And I when I think about your time at WLS in particular managing the zoo such that it was (laughs) and to be able to look back with fondness about all those things and say so many nice things about all those people because well uh, it was the best time to I think it was the best time to be
2: in radio because uh, you know you look back and you got music in two places back in the 60s and 70s either got it in a record store Or you got it on the radio. So radio played an enormous role in people's lives. Now you can get music anywhere. Uh, And so the personalities, again, I think are becoming more and more important to radio companies because uh, just playing the music isn't special anymore. You have to have something else.
0: Something that cuts through.
2: Something that cuts through that people remember like they do when they say, Oh, when I grew up, I listened to Kiondi or I listened to John Landecker's Boogie Check and so on. That's what they remember.
0: Yeah, the, we're now content creators, apparently, yes. uh, so I still like the DJ word. Um, it's an honor to talk to you. I know you get tired of me saying that, but I consider you a friend. And um, and same here. And I have such respect for, for what you've done and what you continue to do. I told you before we started recording this, the one big swing and miss for me was I didn't take a job you offered me in Boston back in the day. <laughs> I went to New York and got fired in six months. But then again, that wasn't a unique story for me. Um, well, maybe you saved me from firing you. Well, that's true. That could have changed the <laughs> scope of the relationship. But I I uh, always appreciate your time, and I think you're an important voice for folks celebrating 100 years of WLS, so thanks for doing this.
2: And I appreciate what you're doing here on their 100th year. You're
0: a good man. All right, I want to do one pick up, you guys. Okay. Just keep rolling. One thing I haven't asked you, I want to ask you, because um, I believe you knew how to pick the hits. Music or talent, what's a big miss? One you wish you had back? Um, a song maybe you missed, or a talent you should have hired.
2: Ooh, that's a tough question. Well, it's I, good that you don't have an immediate answer.: I don't, because uh, I don't think I don't think I missed any
0: songs. So you did the homework, and you had a did system set up. Yeah,
2: I don't. I don't look back and say, "Boy, I should have played that song."
0: What about talent? Is there somebody you moved that you shouldn't have moved? Somebody you hired you shouldn't have hired, or somebody? Um, you...
2: Well, there was somebody I tried to hire.
0: Okay, uh,
2: I tried to hire Brandmeier. Oh, well, really? And he was in Phoenix, and this uh, is the
0: same time that Jimmy DeCastro was going yeah, after and him, and or did going Jimmy after- find out you were going after him?
2: I don't know who found out, but I, you know, I was aware of him because again, you you hear about talent, sure. and I, and I had some tapes, some people sent of him, and so on, and I had an opening for for you know on the radio station for afternoon drive when Landecker went to uh, I think it was when Landecker went to uh, Canada.
0: Oh, into Toronto, that's right.
2: I, I think it was that that time period, but he was still under contract, and again, being working for ABC means you you do things the right way and you don't do things on the sly and uh, and the loop didn't care that he was under contract right and so they hired him and he had to sit out for a period of time but they ended up with him because I couldn't I couldn't induce
0: him to break his contract. But you didn't... That's not a miss. You just couldn't get it done.
2: I couldn't get it done, yeah. Right. And I but was, I look at it as a miss because I would have loved to have had him. I think he would have fit in
0: really well with what we no were question. doing. question, And he's one of the all-time greats. Yes, he is. And one other pickup here? You know, we haven't talked about transitioning from rock to disco and how you do that when you've got this mammoth hip music station and the hits become disco... And maybe the talent's not on board with that whole thing. I'm not even thinking about Steve's Disco Demolition Night, but in general. How'd you balance all that? Uh, very
2: carefully because, you know, we didn't want to go all disco as some radio stations were doing. So, again, the key was, and we had done this all along, it's play the top hits. And so I played the big disco songs But I also made sure we blended in other types of music. And you do that with the the older songs, the recurrence and the songs from the past to make sure your balance is still there so that you're a broad-based radio station and not a one-trick pony
0: radio station. Um, That had to be some headaches, though.
2: Oh, it was tough at times. I mean, every week it was balancing the music out and uh, and working with the talent uh, so that they—because I gave the talent some— uh, you know, we didn't just plot out all the songs and you play them in this order. The talent had some some input in in the what they played in their shows and how they played the songs in their shows. So the key was to, for everybody to be on the same page so that we didn't overdo something.
0: And one other pickup, I'm remembering all these things I forgot to ask. <laughs> How big a deal was the, the music radio, the Big 89 countdown? Was that a huge thing? Oh, we love to do
2: that. The countdown at the end of the year? Yeah. Oh, we love doing that and putting that together. It was just, it was just the fun to do. Was there politics? or People were lobbying, I'm not 37, I'm 30. No, no. Jim Smith and, you know, we would get together and, and again, based on how many weeks the songs, I mean, that was a legit list. So that, that was math. Was, yeah, it was math. It was all math, and we put them together. There, we had to do a, make sure the songs were balanced, so when you're counting them down, you don't get twelve disco songs in a row or sure, something. Sure, sure. But you balance it out. You might move it one place or one, but it was all mathematically done. So it was a legitimate. We tried to do everything legitimate. The playlist we put out every week in the record stores. That was a legitimate list based on the the one the hundred stores that we called. Sure, and that was you know one hundred percent real.
0: Yeah and and I think you know this but you were the first New Year's Eve night out for most teenagers in America because you know preteens in particular but even young teens would stay home for the countdown and they keep track of that year end countdown write it out post it on their bedroom wall yeah. throw it up in some scotch tape and they had the whole list it was
2: it was fun putting it together and it was and the talent everybody had fun doing it
0: It's uh, John Guerin, again, Accuradio. We'd love you to check it out. If you're in San Diego, only listen to his stations. And uh, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for doing this. Right here. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. And happy birthday, WLS. You've been listening to Live from My Office. I appreciate it. And uh, don't forget to hear the radio show. Stream it anywhere in the world or listen on the radio. Yep, we do that, too. It's every weekday morning, 530 to 9. I'm the Big 89 WLS. Thank you, Ross Cochran, for producing live from my office. And thank you for listening. 30 years plus
2: on the airwaves. You have turned your dial to me. Now you're tuned into my podcast. It's live from
0: my office, Steve. From Ithaca, New York, to Carolina South. W. Cochran Steve From Minneapolis And then Chicago twice
2: Top rated shows achieved Sit back, relax And now listen to my show When or wherever you are Cause you're on the go Hey, list celebs with some laughs And great info Live from my office The Steve Cochran Podcast Show Yeah, yeah, yeah no better place to be yeah 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 yeah. subscribe and like for free yeah 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 live from my office steve so glad you're with me it's live from my
1: office steve thank
0: you for listening to live from my office a service of monkey run productions all rights reserved the podcast is hosted by steve cochran and it's mixed edited and produced by me ross cochran Steve is available for corporate speaking gigs. He would love to emcee your event. And occasionally, he's funny. Thank you for listening. Head to
2: CochranShow.com for more.